Welcome to the Feeding the Starving Artist podcast. My name is Rick Goodstein, and with me, as always, is my colleague and partner in crime, Ron McCurdy. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello. We are so pleased to have with us today one of the top call and most versatile basses, acoustic and electric basses, who's done over 1,200 films, television titles, jingles, recording dates, live performances, you name it, he's done it. Uh, we're very happy to have with us Mike Valerio. Mike, how you doing, my friend? Great, man. Thanks for having me today. When Rick and I started this podcast, we were looking, in fact, we were both part of the Disney auditioning tour. He and I would, would lament all the times about what higher education was not doing to prepare students for careers in the arts. So we've put together this podcast and we're calling it Feeding the Starving Artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we want to talk about things that might help emerging artists navigate their way uh, throughout the, the, the artistic landscape. So what I want to start, first of all, uh, like I said, I, I, we, we could take the entire time reading your resume, <laughs> but, we won't, oh. but we won't do that for right now. <laughs> we, we don't need it to was, do any it, of that, yeah. <laughs> but, but I do want people to understand just how skilled you are and like I said, you and I met, uh, in fact, we just decided to discover it almost 30 years ago when you were a member of the Disney All-American College uh, Jazz Band and our tribute to Duke Ellington. And I remember mm-hmm. hearing you play then almost 30 years ago as being someone who was extremely talented. And I said, this guy, I mean, I'm going to be buying his records and, and hearing his music one day. And lo and behold, look at you now. Mm-hmm. So if you wouldn't mind... When you were in undergrad, like you were at Eastman or Indiana at the time. I was at Indiana you... when I auditioned for you, and I was at Eastman prior to that. I started at Eastman and then then finished my degree at Indiana. Yeah. Most college students, myself included, I suspect maybe Rick had the same situation, didn't have a real clear idea as to where we were going to go. We, we knew we loved music. We wanted to be involved in some fashion or another. But we didn't have a real crystallized vision for for our future. Tell tell us, did you know when you were in Indiana, studying with David Baker and that crew, did you have a sense of of what your career path was going to be? Well, yes and no. Um, you have to understand that both at Eastman and Indiana, my uh, my educational path was that of an orchestral musician. I was a classical. Uh, classical performance major in both schools. So the jazz stuff was sort of left to my own devices and 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 catch as catch can. Uh, and the same with the electric bass. I, I never studied uh, consistently on the electric bass. That was something my parents just said, here, just go with this. And, and this can be <laughs> your own. In fact, it was the, the, the grand scam was, well, Michael, if you study the upright bass, we'll buy you an electric bass. And that's all I needed to know. And yeah, and then it, 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 it's always sort of been my first love because it was the thing that was most mine that didn't have anyone else uh, messing with the recipe or, or telling me what I needed to do and, and didn't need to do. So I was set up to be a classical bass player in an orchestra or a, a chamber group or something like that. So that's what I thought I was going to do. And after I left Indiana, I went to the New World Symphony under Michael Tilson Thomas in Miami Beach, Florida, 
And that too was a place where I was like, okay, you know, same trajectory, that of the orchestra musician. And, and what I learned down there is that I didn't want to play in an orchestra exclusively. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, yeah, you know, because I was doing like, there were weeks down at New World where I was, well, first of all, like my first year at New World, I was, I was on the road quite a bit with Roger Williams, the old time piano player, Autumn mm-hmm. Leaves and, you know, things like that. So I was splitting my time where at least, once or twice a month I was out on the road with him. And then when I was in town, I was playing jazz gigs and salsa gigs and you know things like that as well. Just other things that were sort of pulling my ear to maybe maybe something a little bit more varied would be you know in your best interest since that's what you're basically doing now. So the two times in life that I think were pretty powerful marker moments for me were when I when I was like nine or ten and I started singing as a session singer on children's educational records and that (laughs) brought me into the studio and that was a very I don't know if it's just because of the age I was or you know that impressionable or or maybe it was just one of those other things that you know the world and and life leads us to places that make you feel comfortable like I yeah, this is a familiar place for me. And the studio always felt like a familiar place for me. So that was big, big, important moment, number one. And the second one was playing in the Allstate Orchestra growing up in New York, uh, mm. playing assistant principal on the Smetna, uh, the Moldau, and the 1812 Overture with Ur Schneider conducting. And that's when I went home to my parents and said, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this for real. I know that we've talked about it. I know that you don't want me to be a musician. And they're both musicians. And they said, don't, don't go into music. Be a, be a veterinarian or a corporate lawyer or various other things. They, they just didn't, didn't want, because they knew the life was hard. My mother was playing Broadway and Radio City. And my father was playing a bunch of, you know, a bunch of uh, jazz gigs and uh, club dates and things like that, as well as teaching a choir program in the public school, which was internationally recognized because my dad's a badass, mm-hmm. you know, what he does, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, that neither of them wanted me to go into music. And I mean, maybe it was just the, the psychology of, you know, tell them the opposite <laughs> of what you want to, what, of what you want to achieve <laughs> that could have something to do with it, but they, they couldn't be happier and more proud of me for sticking to my guns. And, and they said at that time, you know, we'll support you. Uh, mm-hmm. no, you know, no matter what the outcome is, as long as you understand that, A, uh, no one owes you a life in music. It's a gift. And yeah. B, you're yeah. going to have to work very, very hard, harder than you've ever worked before, and you still might not make it. Yeah. And those were two very, yeah, very important things to hear at a young age. Um, yeah. They could have done a little better in the uh, department of, uh, they never wanted me to get a swelled head. So with the positive <laughs> regard and the, you know, it's like, it, uh, I had no real idea of where I stacked up. And and that's why, Ron, when I spoke to you recently, um, prior to this podcast, you know, one of the most powerful things I think an, an educator or a fellow musician can do to another musician is just give them some positive regard. And some positive feedback, like, hey, you're doing something that's really good here. Keep doing it. Or just just to, like, get them out of their own head for a minute. My parents never wanted me to get a swelled head. 
they, you know, I, I just, I had no idea where, where I was in the general scheme of things. And it was that way with a lot of my teachers as well. They just assumed that I knew I was good and I didn't. So when that comes along and when an opportunity for me comes along, and Ron, we talked about this too. It's like one of the things I really like to do is when someone is doing something that's exceptional and, uh, and they might not know that it's exceptional. I like to let them know that it's exceptional. Like, Hey man, yeah. you know, you're playing on the, and be very specific about it because I think that also reinforces that I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm, I'm telling you, this is exactly why what you're doing is worth the positive accolade and you should keep doing what you're doing. And if you can give that gift to someone, it, it can make the difference in whether or not they continue on that path. Well, Mike, let me ask you how you got from Miami Beach to L.A. That's about as far across the country as you can get. Uh, there must be a story behind that. Okay, very quick answer. Uh, the Henry Mancini Institute, which was based out of L.A. from 1997, I want to say it was its first year. And I went out there the summer of 1998. And mm -hmm. the Mancini Institute started off as a bit of a bust because I was there to, you know, they had advertised that Abraham Laboreal would be teaching. And I thought, ah, that, that sounds great to me. I would love to spend some time with Abe. And Abe and I since had become very close. Uh, mm -hmm. But Abe had to bail, and he, he wasn't there for the first, you know, he, he wasn't there when he went. And I asked him about it afterwards, and he kind of chuckled. He said, oh, yes, bait and switch. <laughs> and that's, that's Abe's sense of humor. Um, and I felt like, man, I, I you didn't bother to tell me this until I got out here. You know, what's what gives? But it turned out to be a, a very powerful program. I got to play with Dave Grusin. I got to meet Chuck Berghofer, who is one of my idols and mentors. And he's, he's the greatest unknown bass player that you've all heard because he played bass on the Barney Miller theme. And he played bass on These Boots Are Made For Walkin'. And he played a bunch mm. with Frank Sinatra and he played on a bunch of film stuff and he played on a bunch of jazz records. And he's just, there's no one that sounds like Chuck. There's no one that has his kind of time feel and just his big beat and his sound. Uh, I've tried to mimic it and I fail. The worst <laughs> thing that can happen is you, that you get stuck doing a record where Chuck's doing some of the other tunes on it that you're not doing. So that people have a, a side by side comparison. That's very humbling, man. Very humbling. <laughs> but Chuck was the first person to say, you know, um, you should move out here. With all that you do and the, the electric stuff and how I've heard you play the upright, and you've also got the classical stuff together because I was taking auditions at the time and getting the finals and in, in, you know, major uh, orchestra auditions. He said, you should get out here. You could be doing very well. And I, I took him up on that. Uh, but mm -hmm. I went back to Miami and Tilson Thomas had heard, you know, that I had spent the summer out in L.A. It was my first time in Los Angeles. And it looked like a place that was agreeable to me because basically my, my choices after New World, if I didn't get a job, were to move back to New York, where I grew up, grew up on Long Island and try to work in New York or go to L.A. 
maybe Nashville, but Nashville really wasn't on my radar. You know, if I wanted mm -hmm. to work in, and Nashville and New York both had more of a reputation of very specific kinds of playing, very specific kinds of gigs, and I could see myself getting pigeonholed as one sort of a player or another sort of a player very easily. L.A. didn't seem to have that hang-up, you know, where it just looked like a place where it was more free-flowing and, and you just had the the sense of space that you could create your own thing as well as do a bunch of different things, and that really appealed to me. So Tilson Thomas said, I understand that you've taken a liking to L.A. As you know, I grew up there. I, uh, I have m many friends that are still out there, and I'm happy to make whatever calls you'd like me to make on your behalf. You just tell me what you want to do and when, which was a pretty mm. big shock to my system that, A, he was aware that I had been out there and liked it, and B, that he was willing to do you know, whatever, whatever needed to be done to, to get me out there. And it was another case of like someone that believed in me and, and it came as a surprise. It came mm -hmm. as a kind cause I really, you know, I was starting to final in auditions and I was okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting where I need to be as an orchestral player, but I still don't really have an idea of where I fall in the, the greater scheme of things. And he hooked me up with Ralph Grierson, who was his college roommate and was the 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 number one keyboard player in LA for a very long time, and and uh, they you know Michael and Ralph used to do like the Monday evening concerts together where they'd play the Rite of Spring four hands you know as a party <laughs> trick and things like that, and they you know they they they're lifelong friends they're still very very close, and uh, Ralph introduced me to Chuck DeMonico who became another mentor of mine, and I actually play on Chuck's instrument, Mama, his upright bass that he played almost his entire career on. Um, I, I'm the, uh, you know, the steward of that instrument now. And, you know, and, and other people as well. I got to do some sessions. He had, uh, he had actually, prior to me coming out to L.A., flew out a contractor named David Lowe who was heir to Sandy DeCrescent's throne at the time. And Sandy DeCrescent being the biggest game in town in terms of film music, she was, you know, the, the biggest film music contractor in the world. And I, I think might still have that title, although I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and she was very, very good to me. And, you know, there was an opportunity where I got to thank her for, you know, giving me a, a career, essentially. And uh, she said, well, I have to thank you, too, Mike, because you made <laughs> me look really good, <laughs> which was also nice to hear. Yeah. Um, as, as you were speaking, I was thinking about the whole idea of of, of there's a book by uh, Angela Beeching called Beyond Talent. Okay. That I use in my entrepreneurship class, which was, I think which is a very fitting topic. And as we know, there are a host of great musicians on every instrument we can think of. And you mentioned it in the article that was in the in the uh, in the uh, recent bass magazine about yes. how you were able to fit in and almost be not not anonymous, but being in a way that there was no chest thumping or bringing any unnecessary attention to yourself for all the wrong reasons. How right. how did? What kind of advice would you give? I mean, I, 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 we know that that's, that's absolutely crucial, 
what what type of advice would you give to a, a, an aspiring young student who wants to work in that kind of an environment where time is money, it's got to be right the first time, there's no time for for multiple redos because someone came in early or was out of tune or what have you. What kind of advice would you give in terms of just the, the, the non-musical aspect of how does one fit into that kind of a situation? Antenna, awareness, uh, keeping your eyes and ears open at all times. And if you find yourself slacking in that department, reboot. Because A, generally speaking, people aren't going to tell you in those situations what you're doing wrong or what you need to be doing instead. They're just going to let you phase out because, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's no time. There's no time for that. And the folks that are going to learn tend to learn it on their, their own. And the folks that don't learn tend to never learn. And I've seen that play out time and time again. It's, it's not just about being a good hang. Uh, it's not just about uh, fitting in socially. Um, it's about awareness more so than anything else. And, and that's the same kind of awareness, being able to you know, pick up on social cues as well as musical cues, uh, being aware of what's happening in the low brass section, being, you know, and even in those situations, not, not doing so in a way that draws attention to yourself, but in a way that, that can be subtle. The bass section has always been and a lot of this was explained to me by one of our elder statesmen, a, a bass player named Richard Phoebus. When I started playing principal bass, and it wasn't going well because I think I was over-asserting myself. And I turned to him and I said, man, tell me what I'm doing wrong. You know, it's, it's just not <laughs> going well. And uh, he said, I, I have a lot of things to say, and uh, we can do this anytime. I said, how about now? He said, sure. And on the top of the Paramount Studios parking structure, we spoke for about an hour and a half, and he filled me in a lot of things and wow. things, that I, things that I was doing. And I'm really glad that I asked because he wasn't going to tell me unless I asked. And that was a situation that I'm very grateful for because I learned a lot about how to be a leader in the studio, um, why, there, why it's different than being a principal base of an orchestra. Because when you're in a section on a studio call, Every person in that room is, is playing principal for another orchestra or another composer. So you've got an entire section full of folks that know what it's like to be in that chair and probably do it better than you do. And there's a lot to learn from them. And that was priceless information, you know, as well as one thing he said, it's, it's better to be interested than interesting. And that goes back to how much attention are you drawing to yourself? You know, it's good to be interested because it means that you're engaged in the, the conversation and you're aware of what's going on. It's not as good to be interesting because that pulls focus from the, the task at hand, you know, which is generally speaking, making music that, can, that always has to be a, a bit subservient to the picture. If you draw mm -hmm. too much attention with your hot licks or, or you know, playing a great solo or whatever, you know, they're going to they're going to cut it out. You know, you have to do something that, that serves the picture, that supports the picture. It can be hand in hand with the picture. It can be married to the picture. It can enhance the picture, but it can never outdo the picture. And that's something that's, that 
comes back to it's it's better to be interested than interesting and that's something that stuck with me yeah in that conversation mike i read somewhere that the more that you studied classical music the better your jazz and electric playing became can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit more about that well the climate 30 years ago, and this is something that I, I mentioned in that Bass Magazine interview, was that you needed to make a choice. If you were serious about music, that meant that you had to, in a sense, pigeonhole yourself and be the classical guy or the jazz guy or the electric guy. And everyone along the way at that period in time was telling me, my parents included, you know, who, when I went to Eastman, they said, well, your, your mother and I think that you should leave your electric bass here at home because we think it'd be a distraction to you. And uh, then I got into the, one of the jazz bands there immediately and immediately needed my electric bass. So, you know, so I went home and got my electric bass. And, and I'm really glad I did. Uh, sorry, mom and dad, not, you know, uh, I don't mean to air dirty laundry. I mean, they thought that they were doing the best thing that they could do for me at the time, which was to help me focus, which I had trouble doing. So I'm appreciative of that kind of you know, the thought that went into that thing. However, if I had listened to everyone that had told me to make a choice, I would not have the career that I have. And I would not be as happy as I am. And I would not be as successful as I am because one, one instrument informs the other, informs the other. The work that I do as an arranger informs the way that I play. The work that I do as a conductor informs the way that I arrange. Uh, the work that I do as a bass player informs both of those other things. One of the, my successes as you know, getting to conduct some sessions as of late is that I know what it's like to be on the other side of the box. And, you know, all of these things help to balance out the other and help feed the other in ways that I would never have access to if I was just the bass player or, you know, just the electric player, just the 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 arranger um so i think keep keep an open mind know what your strengths and weaknesses are i mean not everyone is set out to be someone that does all of these things um one of my thoughts on coming to los angeles when i first came out here so i can't wait there's going to be a bunch of people like me and we're going to hang out and we're going to have a great time and we're going to feed off of each other and bounce ideas off of each other and, and that was true to a degree, but not the degree that I had in my head about what things were like. I thought it was going to be like, you know, the Disney World experience of just, hey, we're hanging. It's, it's going to be great. You know, everything's going to be great. We're going to learn from each other. It's going to be fantastic. And it was not that. It was a lot of other things, many of which were really great, but it wasn't that. But getting back to your original question, what to do, um, there's plenty of sessions that you can play on now as students in most of the music schools in the country that have some sort of a, a recording program. Play on all of them. One of the things that was great about my time at New World was that I freelanced a year before I went to New World, so I knew what it was like to have to pay my own rent and <laughs> hustle for gigs and run the wheels off the car. I was, I was based in Bloomington, but I was doing gigs in Indianapolis, Chicago, Louisville, Cincinnati, and and I knew what that that hustle was like. And you're just like you're hustling because you have to because you have to make the rent. Um, so when I got to New World 
And my rent was paid. I was given a little bit of spending money. People were coming down to give us lessons for free from all the major orchestras. I got to work with Paul Ellison and Hal Robinson and Peter Lloyd and Jack Budrow and all these great teachers. But the other thing that was most, most important is I knew it was for a limited time. And I knew that I had you know a, a maximum of three years there. And I wanted to soak up as much as I could because this was uh, you know for a limited time only. And that mindset got my ass to every master class that came in there, whether it was a violist or a French horn player. And I was soaking up as much as I could, even when I was dead tired, because we, we worked really hard down there and we partied really hard too. So there was a lot of late <laughs> nights of, you know, discussing music. You know, so we had such a good time. It, it was uh, the most important three years of my life. But I was prepared for it in you know, mentally because I, I just had a sense of urgency, you know, that time is limited. One of the things that we take for granted when we're in our teens and 20s is that everything is finite. And we just think, oh, we're, you know, we're invincible and, we're, and there's plenty of time to, to figure this all out. Uh, yes and no, and mostly no. So if I... If I could talk to my younger self about it a little bit earlier, it just would have been that advice is just you know, soak up as much of this as you can because uh, it's for a limited time only. And just you know, try to be present more often than not because it's not going to come back again. And mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that would be advice that I give. But just get as much experience as you can under your belt. Work on your sight reading. Very important. Um, and that's something that I still run into is people that I can't I can't recommend for gigs because their reading isn't up to snuff. And I've never considered myself a, a strong reader, but but I'm a good reader, you know. And and I can read the page in a way that some other people can't because I can look at it and hear the harmony and direction and and all that other stuff and be aware of what's happening in the room. You know, which sometimes gets me into trouble, especially if I, if it's like a tune I know, and someone takes mm -hmm. a left turn with it in the arranging, you know, and <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting that, and I went with my memory of the tune, and ah, I played a wrong note. Good, <laughs> great, you know, keeps you humble. It's uh, you know, it, that yeah. does happen. You know, one of the things that, at least on my side of things, um, there's a big fear that a you'll you make one mistake and you're out. Well, I'm proof that that's not the case. I've made plenty of mistakes <laughs> in my professional career. Uh, another mistake is that, uh, or, or a misnomer about the studios is if you say no once to a contractor, you'll never get called again. And I've, I'm also proof that that's not the case. Yeah, at least not yet. All gigs come to an end and all careers come to an end. And you you may be, retired without you even knowing uh <laughs> they might have retired you on your behalf and that happens too and and but if you if you know that that's kind of the way things work you know yes youth is always king um everyone likes young fresh faces in their orchestra but more more so than that good playing good talent good hang if you have these things 
um, and a good work ethic, you're gonna you're gonna work. You will work. There's always room for good players, provided mm -hmm. that the other things are in place, provided that they're easy to get along with, provided that they're aware of their surroundings and they don't need to be talked to about how to play, how to act. You know, they're figuring it out for themselves, and that is efficient. And that's what I think. That's that might be the thing that keeps certain people working and certain other people not. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. I want to thank you for your time and wondered if maybe you could come back next week so we could continue to feed that starving artist. Absolutely. Great. Until next time, this is Rick Goodstein and Ron McCurdy with Mike Valerio saying to everybody, let's keep feeding the starving artist. We'll see you next week.